Okay, let's this morning take our Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 5. And as you turn there, let's bow together in a word of prayer. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we come, Father, wanting to uh, understand more of your word. We come wanting to see more of who Christ is, so our faith would increase. We want to come, Father, giving ourselves to you, knowing that being a Christian is different than any other thing that we have ever done and have ever been involved in. So, Lord, teach us to be faithful and to trust you in all circumstances because you love your children and whatever you allow to happen in their lives is always, always for their good. And so let us understand that and live accordingly so, Lord, we can live out our faith uh, in a victorious and a bold manner. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now this morning, uh, as I look at this passage of Scripture, I put in um, uh, the bulletin that I was going to be doing Mark chapter 5, verse 21 to uh, verse 43. But I decided, because of the largeness of this text, uh, to do it in two parts. And, uh, but I have to explain to you what I'm going to do, because the verses... 21 to 43 is one package, all right? And so I'm going to divide it up and let it end where it ends this morning and then pick it up next week. All right, let me just back up for a minute. Now, until, up until this point, so I'm going to be starting in verse number 21. Up until this point, uh, the revelation about who Jesus is is becoming more evident to his disciples and to those who are crowding around him. We saw that Jesus, we saw Jesus as uh, the powerful God who brought calm out of chaos by stilling the storm in which the waves and the wind obeyed his voice of authority. It was, of course, an event specifically and providentially designed to increase the disciples' faith, specifically about who Jesus is. They are now beginning to see him as God, as a powerful Lord, and they did not see that before. And so as the boat that they were in makes its way to the other side of Galilee, there was no time to settle when there arose another storm of a different type. On a dark and demonic seashore, Jesus brought sanity to insanity. Jesus commanded the legion of demons to leave the man they possessed They had to obey his commanding voice, and so they left. And after they left, this untamed, wild, ferocious, demon-possessed man was now tame, calm, clothed, and rational. If you look at chapter 5, verse 15, it says, They came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed, sitting down, clothed in his right mind, and every man 
the very man who had the legion, the legion of demons. And of course, remember, legion was a very large amount of demons that were possessing this man. The demonic, uh, demoniac experienced the redemptive touch of Christ. Then he became a witness to his family and to his friends, and he reported, verse number 19 of chapter 5, what great things the Lord has done and how God had mercy on him. That's what he reported to the people. So Jesus' mercy went out to a man who had been held captive in pain and in shame by evil spirits. This man, like us, are by nature slaves to evil. We are not free as we think we are. We are actually bent on self-destruction. Everyone is. Left to ourselves, we will destroy ourselves. We're incapable, incapable of breaking the powers that have bound us. Our sin, uh, the world system, and Satan are controlling us. We are really not in control. So it is Christ alone who can break the power of sin and Satan in our lives and set us free to finally serve God. And that's what the whole gospel of Mark is about, serving God. Jesus being the model servant and all those who follow him to serve him in the kingdom of God, preaching the gospel of repentance and faith so others come into the kingdom. So that's where we were. Now in verse number 21, it says, When Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side, that's of course the other side of the Lake of Galilee, a large crowd gathered around him, and so they stayed by the seashore, or he stayed by the seashore. Now so next we find Jesus hanging out around the seashore. uh, And most likely... He was doing that because he was dining at Matthew's house, which was right on the seashore. Remember, Matthew was the tax collector, got saved, and now he's following Jesus. Uh, And then, of course, Jesus and his disciples crossed over to the western shore of the Lake of Galilee. And so that's what's going on now. And what he runs into is two people. The first one is Jairus in verse number 22. One of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up and on seeing him fell at his feet. And then in verse 25, a woman who had a hemorrhage uh, in verse 25 for 12 years. So these are the two people that Jesus is going to meet. So there's two stories in this section of Scripture. And it's packaged like a sandwich, all right? You have the top piece of bread, you have the bottom piece of bread, and then you have the peanut butter and jelly in the middle, all right? That's how it's packaged. Now, this morning, I'm going to spend time on the peanut butter and jelly. I'm going to say a little bit about the top slice, a little bit about the bottom slice, but I'm going to focus in on the peanut butter and jelly. The reason why is because that's what the text does. The text focuses in on the narrative that is driving these two stories. And it's laying the foundation for what comes at the end. So there are several things 
that I would like to bring to your attention concerning these stories. I'm not going to read the whole text this morning because it's a large section, but I want to just throw some things out to you. In, in these two stories of the Jairus and his daughter and this woman, that both stories highlight females healed by the touch of Jesus. Also, both females are called daughters by Jesus. Both women's diseases, uh, actually one woman's disease was a disease she had for 12 years, and the little girl was 12 years old. Uh, Both stories are met with rebuke. Both stories bring Jesus into contact with the unclean. In one sense, the minstrel hemorrhage of the woman and then the corpse of a dead child. Uncleanness is then transferred to Jesus and Jesus bestows the cleansing wholeness of God upon them. And then both find hope in Jesus when all human help has been exhausted. So all those things are going on in these two narratives uh, in this section of Scripture. So now let me move on this morning to the top slice of bread and look at what it says in the narrative. And this is talking about the public official with his dying daughter. His daughter is not yet dead. His daughter is dying. And notice three things about this man, Jairus, all right? His status, his actual petition, and then Jesus' response to him. And I'm just going to look at this one briefly. In verse number 22, all right, Jairus was a person of status and privilege, and he was, in other words, in Hebrew, the Rosh HaKneset. And it says there, verse number 22, one of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up and on seeing him fell at his feet. So this man definitely had status. He was, matter of fact, he is named. Not many people are named in the Gospel of Mark, but he is named here. So what is he? He's one of the elders who manage the services and the affairs of the synagogue. He is not a priest. He is a layperson, but a prominent layperson. And he comes running, humbling himself at Jesus' feet and weighed down with something very heavy. And what is he weighed down by? Well, his petition in verse number 23 is that, and he implored him earnestly, saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. So that was his petition. That was his prayer. He was placing, uh, he was pleading for his his only daughter. She was the only daughter, a child that he had, a daughter who was 12 years old. We find out that later in the text that she was 12 years old. And she was at the end of hospice care. She had no other hope except Jesus. And this synagogue official recognized that. Now, what's Jesus' response to his request in verse number 24? And he went off with him. A large crowd was following him and pressing in on him. All right, so Jesus accedes to the petition of Jairus, and he rushes off to his home where his daughter lays sick at the point of death. 
That's what's going on. And so it says also in our narrative that a very large crowd was following them and pressing around Jesus and, and his disciples and Jairus as they rush off to his home. So this is in a very imperative situation. Uh, this is an emergency. I mean, the first aid squad has to get there or this little girl's going to die. Every second counted. Now, you would think uh, in our own minds that Jesus would rush off uh, with him to Jairus' house and take care of business, but something else takes place. And this is the peanut butter and jelly in the sandwich of this narrative. That's how it's packaged. And so this centerpiece becomes the most important aspect of these two stories. And let's see what happens. Now, I said the first one was the public official with his dying daughter. This one is the private woman with her incurable condition. Now, let's look at her status and situation in verse number 25 and 26. Now, I just want to mention that she had no status. She had no privilege. In fact, she is nameless. She just called a woman. She's unclean. She's ashamed. And there's, I want you to notice three significant things about this woman's situation. The first thing is this. She was desperate. Why is she desperate? She has a flow of blood. All right. In other words, some type of uterine bleeding that no one could stop. And notice what it says in verse 25. A woman who had had a hemorrhage for 12 years, she was suffering with this thing. And most likely because of her disease, she's probably unmarried, uh, without children, which added to her desperation in in this particular culture as, as a Jewish woman. She should have had a family by now and been going on, but now she's not in that condition. So she is very much suffering, and she's desperate. So she's definitely uh, desperate. The second thing, though, she is destitute, right? She exhausted her wealth. Notice in verse number uh, 26, and had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. So she spent all her money on fruitless cures, Many physicians had bungled the woman's case. They took her money and left her in worse condition. However, it doesn't seem that there was any wrongdoing on the part of physicians, only that they didn't didn't have the medicine, they didn't have the tools, they didn't have the knowledge uh, at their disposal at that particular time in history to relieve her of her condition. So she tried everything she could, and she was destitute. So she had no more money. She couldn't pay any more doctors. She was also, a third thing, dejected. And the reason why she was dejected, because it says there that she had a flow of blood. That means she was declared in society with this major purity that made her unclean. And so that means that she was socially an outcast. She couldn't go amongst the crowd of peoples. 
She couldn't do those things, and the reason why she couldn't is because of Leviticus chapter 15. I'd like you to turn there to see the context of what is behind this. Leviticus chapter 15, um, I guess verse number 25. That's Leviticus chapter 15, and if you notice verse number 25, it says this. It says, now if a woman had a discharge of her blood many days, not at the period of her menstrual impurity, or if she had a discharge beyond that period, all the days of her impurity uh, discharge, she shall continue as though in her menstrual impurity she is unclean. Verse 26 of Leviticus chapter 15. Any bed on which she lies all the days of her discharge shall be her uh, to be to her like her bed at menstruation and everything on which she sits shall be unclean like her uncleanness at that time verse 27 likewise whoever touches them shall be unclean and shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening when she becomes clean from her discharge she shall count off for herself seven days and afterwards she will be clean then on the eighth day she shall take for herself two turtle doves and two pigeons to bring them to the priest to the doorway of the tent of meeting the priest shall offer the one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering so the priest shall make atonement on her behalf before the lord because of her impure discharge and then verse 31 thus you shall keep the sons of Israel separate from, her un, from their uncleanness so that they will not die in their uncleanness by their defiling my tabernacle that is among them. So in other words, this woman, because of what it says in the Levitical law, was almost as unclean as a leopard. No one was allowed to touch her or her clothes if they did, they would become unclean too. And so she was excluded from the worshiping community. How much worse could it get for someone during this day? She contaminates people. She can't even go around those that she loved. Anyone who came in contact with her by lying on a bed or sitting on a chair or touching her would require to go through the process of being washed wash their clothes, and the, pitch, uh, the, the ritual purity, uh, purity ceremony that they went through so a person could, could become clean. So this woman, in other words, despaired because no human could help her. No one could help her. And so what happens now? Well, a second thing, uh, considering this woman, being that she had no status, was... She had no petition necessarily. In verse 27 and 29, the woman had no petition, but only had heard about Jesus, which gave her a thoughtful plan. In other words, she's been hearing about the miracles of Jesus. She's been hearing all that's been going on. It's been coming to her. The news has been traveling to her. And she heard about this, and she thought to herself that he could help me. And so she made a plan to try to get to him. So, see, Jesus can succeed when 
other sources of healing and salvation fail. That is definitely true here. She thought, if I could only touch his cloak, his garment. And remember that this woman was ceremonially unclean and should not have been in the crowd, let alone reaching out to touch someone, making them ceremonially unclean or ritually unclean. But she was hoping that no one would take notice her. She wanted to keep her situation hidden and private. That was her plan. And so let's look what happens here. Uh, She comes behind Jesus. The crowd is crowding around him, touching him, all kinds of stuff is going on. She comes behind him, and notice in verse number 27. After hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak. For she thought, if I just touch his garments, I will get well. So the only cost, she didn't have to pay any money for this, like the doctors, the only cost would be faith. That's the only thing that she would have to do. She would have to have faith. But just a note to give you some of the things that she was going through in this text is that Jesus wore a shimla, a large square cloth that was used as an outer robe. It had tassels on the four corners according to the requirement of Deuteronomy chapter 22 where it says you shall make for yourself tassels on the four corners of your garment with which you cover yourself. See, two of the corners of the shimla were worn over the shoulder. And as you wore it o- throw it over, threw it over the shoulder, the, the tassels hung behind him. Well, that's what she touched. And she was probably thinking, I'm going to touch the least amount of his garment so he won't feel me touching him. And maybe I won't transfer uncleanness to him. All right, in fact... Uh, the Gospel of Matthew uh, tells us in 9, chapter 22, the same passage, it says, that, it says it this way, and the woman who had been suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak. That's the tassel of his cloak, the edge, the border, the hem. That's what she desire, uh, desired to touch. And so she didn't want him to feel that she was touching him or to see anyone think that she was pressing, just in case she uh, was revealed and people saw who she was and then she would be, her plan would be done. Well, that's what she did. She reached out and touched the fringe of his cloak, and to her surprise, something happened. Uh, in verse 29, look what it says. Immediately... The flow of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. So she was taken very much back by surprise, and what kept flowing like a spring, now, uh, and no man could, was able to stop, now disappeared completely, dried up, as if it never oozed from her body before. In other words, she had sub, a subjective realization that at the moment that she touched the end of the tassel of Jesus, 
She had been healed and immediately felt it in her body, immediately. It, it is expressed in our text by the perfect tense, which simply means, I've been healed! That's what she was thinking. She didn't say that out loud because she wants to keep everything private and quiet. And she wants to touch Jesus and get out of there because she doesn't want to be noticed. However, what she did not want to happen happened. She was found out. Her secret plan all of a sudden became public revelation. See, this brought, this is really brought to our attention by Jesus' response to her in the next passage. But before I read that, see, we need to be aware that when we go to Jesus for any kind of help, whether it's in salvation, whether it's in, in our prayer requests or petitions, uh, we will give, we will both give to and get from him more than we bargain for. When we come in contact with Jesus, we will get more than we bargain for, and he will require more from you than you think. See, that is something that the woman never, ever thought of. And so that's what's going on here. So what is Jesus' response? Look what it says in verse number 30. Immediately, Jesus, perceiving in himself that power proceeded from him and gone forth, turned around in the crowd and says, Who touched my garments? Who is it? See, she was not healed without Jesus' notice or will. Many people had been touching Jesus, but this woman purposely touched him with her faith. In fact, it says in verse 31, and his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing on you and you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see the woman who had done this. So see, in other words, Jesus knew the touch of faith. He knew what genuine faith was. He knew her ailment. He knew her healing. He knew her desperation. He knew her plan. He knew she wanted to stay private. So Jesus realized that power had had gone out of him to work this miracle. And so he had taken her uncleanness and sickness and imparted to her his purity and Health. See, Jesus overcame her uncleanness and actually reversed it. Now, but you have to think of it, what's really, what else is going on in this particular narrative? Well, the possibilities of her private plan being made known are really threefold. There's a reason why Jesus exposed her. The first one, the plan is to reveal herself. He wanted to reveal the woman. She did not have to hide her ailment and its miraculous removal. He also, she also needed to know that only the power of Jesus healed her, that this was no hocus-pocus healing. It is probable that her hope was based in some measure on superstition. Because remember, her plan was just to touch him and get out of there, right? And that was going on. The word was out that if you just touch this guy named Jesus, whatever's going on in your body, whatever healing you need, whatever demons you have, they're leaving. 
All right, so this gets around, so that was her plan. In fact, if you look at back at chapter 3 in verse number 10, if you remember what it said there, it says, uh, it said in verse, chapter 3, verse 10, for he had healed many with the result that all those who had afflictions pressed around him in order to touch him. All right, and then we're going to see it again in chapter 6 of Mark, in verse number 56. It wasn't really a bad plan, because if you look at verse 56 of chapter 6, it says, whenever he entered villages or cities or countryside, they were laying the sick in the marketplaces and imploring him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak, and as many as touched it were being cured. So her plan wasn't that bad. The only thing is that her plan most likely had some Roots in superstition, just like people today. In other words, there's something there, superstition versus real faith. What, which is it? You know, when I when I was uh, in Rome many many years ago, and I was at the St. Peter's Basilica, there's a there's a huge statue of uh, a liking of St. Peter who's sitting in a chair, and right at the level of someone's eyes, there his feet are, and one of his feet were touched so many times it was just a wedge where the other ones was was up a little bit higher and wasn't touched so much so you could still see the you know the toes and stuff like that and the reason why people do that is it because if i touch this statue of peter somehow i'm going to have some connection to god that will help me if i wear the saint christopher medal he's going to He's going to protect me on my travels around the world. If I put a statue of Mary in front of my house, I'm going to, my house is going to be protected. See, that's all superstition. That is not faith at all whatsoever. And people are, are I was, you were, uh, any, many other people are, they're steeped in this kind of thing. And Jesus would not have her come to him with some superstitious notion so, in other words, her theology needed to be corrected. Also, her plan was exposed for the crowds, the, the crowd's sake, who were thronging around him. See, the crowd was only eager to see another miracle, but he provides none for their eyes this time. Nobody saw this woman get healed. This was all done very covert, covertly and in private the healing was so the crowd didn't see a thing he only provides to the crowd a private woman's testimony that she had been healed from her incurable disease by jesus and they wouldn't find that out till later well in a few moments and then the plan is revealed for the sake of jairus and jesus disciples see this kind of faith met by the touch of Jesus, could not go unpublicized. This is a great example of faith. And Jesus did not want this to be private. He wanted to be brought out into the open for everyone to know. So the woman worked her plan, but got more than she anticipated. She got more than she bargained for. She came to Jesus for healing. She wanted to just touch him and get out of there. She wanted to say, I'm better. I'm, I'm leaving. But Jesus would not have it. 
He would not allow her to do that. Jesus forced her into the public eye. Jesus requested that she identify herself. That was a very frightening thing for her. And so you would think in a way, why is Jesus Jesus doing this? Why is Jesus Jesus, uh, exposing her when this woman's intention was to to stay private and quiet and and get out of there and and not hurt anybody and all those things? And the reason why is because Jesus wanted more, much more for her than physical healing. He wanted her to be spiritually healed. He wanted her in his kingdom. And so just to be healed doesn't get you anywhere. It just makes you well, physically. It doesn't get you into God's kingdom. Even if Jesus heals you, it doesn't get you into God's kingdom. See, there must be some other healing that takes place. And so remember, one enters the kingdom of God by repentance and faith. So in other words, she needed to be exposed in order to correct her theology. It was not just a touch But it was faith in Jesus that healed her. Also, she needed needed to be exposed in her heart to bring out what she was really up to. Because if she had touched him, she did break the law. Right? She did, and she knew that. And she was trying to keep it all quiet and get away. But Jesus says, oh, no, that's not going to happen. That's, that's not going to help anybody. So what happens? Well, here's the woman's response. Look at verse number 32. It says, when, now, now just get this. When the eyes of Jesus rested on her, verse 32, and he looked around to see the woman who had done this. See, the woman's response to Jesus' look. Could you imagine Jesus looking at you and pointing you out? And seeing right through you like a sharp sword. Seeing everything that you ever done in your life. He sees everything, right? And what, what, what kind of response would you have if you come face to face with holiness? Well, look what it says in verse number 33. But the woman fearing and trembling, of, aware of what had happened to her. Let me just stop there. See, this woman was frightened and trembling because she knew what had occurred in her body when she touched Jesus. So she was seized with fear when he looked upon her, but something else happened. Even though she wanted to keep the whole event private, Jesus wanted it to be made known and and make it public. And when the eyes of Jesus rested on her, she did something normal when confronted with holiness. In verse number 33, notice what it says. She not only came fearing, trembling, aware of what happened to her, and came and and fell down before him. She fell down before him. So, in other words, she was guilty. She comes, he he got her, he, he he has her in his sights. She is now feeling guilt of what she's done. All right? He knows I want to, to touch him, and I transferred uncleanness to him. He knows everything that's been going on in my heart. But I want you to notice in verse number 33, there is something that this brought out. You know what this brought out of the woman? Confession of sin. Look what it says in our, our passage. She fell, came and fell down, verse number 33, 
down before him and told him the whole truth. You know the saying, raise your hand, right? And uh, listen, are you ready to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth so help you God? She comes and tells him the whole truth. In other words, him looking at her, seized her with fear, made her guilty of her sin in her heart, and she's ready to confess. She's ready to say, I've, I was 12 years old in a desperate condition. I had nowhere else to go. I spent all my money on cures, never looked to God for help. My condition got worse. I'm ceremonially unclean, and I touched you and transferred uncleanness to you. I broke the law. I did unlawful conduct. I disobeyed the law and made you unclean by touching you. And what I heard about you, you became my last hope, so I had a plan. And my plan was just to touch the hem of your garment and get out of there. And so nobody would know. So she... She suspected that possibly the response of Jesus in this situation would have been scolding her. But he doesn't scold her. In fact, she was healed by touching Jesus, that's for sure, and that becomes evident. But Jesus wanted to bring out what was going on inside of her. He wanted to bring out the guilt and the confession. Why? It's by repentance of sin and faith that anyone is saved so she she needed to know that jesus is powerful and loving to her astonishment jesus treats her with profound tenderness which becomes clear in chapter 5 and verse number 34 look what he says to her he said to her daughter Your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. Now, this is a very telling statement that Jesus makes here. He's calling her daughter, welcoming her into the kingdom of God. He commends her faith. Your faith has made you well. In other words, that... Her faith was trust and confidence in Jesus from the, from the reports she was hearing about him and his miracles, and so she made her plan to come and touch him. That was an act of faith. These inspired her, her faith inspired her to seek out Jesus, to move towards him, and to do something that was unacceptable, and that was to touch him, and that's what she did. However, her faith did not rest in the physical touch but in the person touched. Jesus answered the secret unspoken trust of her heart with saving faith. Uh, he, He commends her for her faith after her confession, after she tells him the whole truth. See, theologically, thinking about this, there is no intrinsic power in her faith or our faith. See, her faith was the instrumental cause of her healing. Her faith was not the efficient cause of her healing. Jesus was the efficient cause. He is always the efficient cause. In other words, it was Jesus who healed the woman, not her faith. 
but her faith being the instrument in the right person, Jesus Christ, then the opportunities for healing here and salvation become a reality. It was R.C. Sproul who says, just as in our justification, God does not declare us righteous because there is any inherent righteousness in our faith, prompting God to say, because you have faith, I will save you. No, that's not a way it goes at all. Faith is the instrumental cause of justification because it is the tool. It is the instrument by which we take hold of Christ. Christ is the efficient cause of justification. And in the same way, it was Jesus who healed the woman. And so the compassion of Jesus sends her off with a blessing. And I want you to notice what he says to her in in verse number 34. Not only did he say, daughter, your faith has made you whole, but go in peace. Now, the only ones who leave Jesus in peace are people who have peace the peace of God, and have peace with God. So, yes, and the very word that he used for uh, healing her is the word for salvation, too, that's used many times in the gospel and in other places in Scripture. So, see, Jesus reassures her that because of his will, she need not fear the return of her old ailments. She need not fear... uh, it says, and be healed of your afflictions. Jesus was not, would not settle for just physical healing. Spiritual salvation must be experienced also. And so he uses the word go in peace. And peace, uh, even in Hebrew, means uh, wholeness, well-being, prosperity, uh, security, friendship, salvation. is all wrapped up in the world word peace. So he is telling, listen, listen to her. Not only have you been healed, but you have been brought into the kingdom of God. And the way he says it here is calling her, in a relational way, a family way, daughter. Uh, Your faith has made you well, salvifically too, not just physically. So see, this is the, the, the peanut butter and jelly in the middle of the sandwich that sets the story about Jairus that's picked up in the next passage. Now, in closing this morning, just in keeping this in your mind, Jesus singles out those he chooses to give individual care. He does that. When he does that, you can no longer remain anonymous. Once God saves a person, cleans a person, makes them his disciples, and puts them in his family, you are no longer anonymous. So Jesus is going to require more from you than you thought. You cannot have an encounter with Jesus without knowing who healed you, who knows you, who saved you, and who cares for you. You cannot go on in your Christian life without knowing more and more and more and more about Jesus Christ. He's going to be the one that we fall in love with. Uh, more and more. He's going to be the one who we know is the source of our salvation. It was the source of her healing and salvation. And so Jesus is the source of our salvation. So again, be aware that when you go to Jesus for help, you will both give to and get from Jesus far more than you bargained for. but it will be the blessing 
of sending you away, knowing that you have peace with God, knowing that you're in the, a child of the kingdom, knowing that God cares for you in a very specific way, and knowing that he pays attention to you. He singles us out. He puts his gaze upon us. That's what Jesus does. He wants a personal relationship. He doesn't want you to touch and run. He wants you to touch and stay. And as you touch and stay, he wants you to grow in him. He wants you to get close and understand him. He wants you to see who he is and what he's done for you. He wants an abiding relationship with you. Now, all that leads to the next section of Scripture, which I'll bring up next week. But I want to leave you with the passage that it leads to. So, remember, Jairus comes to Jesus. His daughter's dying. Jesus gets interrupted by this woman, but it's amazing. Jesus is an interruptible God. You can interrupt him, right? Because he is in control of all things. In fact, we understand that Jesus knew the little girl was going to die, right? And so look what it says in verse number 35 of this chapter. While he was still speaking... They came from the house of the synagogue official saying, your daughter has died, why trouble the teacher anymore? Now, what's the significance of that? Now, I'm sure that Jairus would say, all right, my daughter died. What else could I do? Not even Jesus can help her now, right? That would be a very common thing to think, right? But there's a problem. This is the problem. Jairus has been watching this event with this woman this whole time. So he was increasing his faith. That's what's going on. And so that's why Jesus says to him, in verse number 36, Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, do not be afraid any longer, only believe. So, see, without the visual story of this woman, maybe he wouldn't have been able to believe. But with this story now in his mind, watching it, probably being, being impatient, listen, we need to go to see my daughter. We need to see her before she dies. Jesus says, listen, only believe. So, see, something happened in that moment, not only to the disciples, but to Jairus. His faith increased in who Jesus is and, and what he could do and how he speaks to people and how he cares for people. And so now, next week, I'll pick up the rest of the story. You know? Here's the rest of the story. All right? And that'll be next week. So just keep that in mind as we're thinking through this, that Jesus is designing these things and the, the, the Father, the Scripture is designing these things to increase his disciples' faith and everybody around him and specifically this one man, Jairus' faith because of what's going to happen next. So let's pray. Lord, thank you this morning for, again, the, the Scriptures. They are an incredible thing to gaze our eyes upon. Lord, what we see happen is just amazing because of who you are, because of what you do, because of the very person you are and how you want to make yourself known to people in the right way, in the right manner, so they get 
you so they can either believe in you or reject you, not stand in the middle ground because there is no middle ground with you, Lord. It's either we follow you or we go our own way. So I thank you, Lord, for this narrative of this woman. I pray, Lord, as we think of it ourselves, it would increase our faith. That sometimes, Lord, we want to stay anonymous as believers. Sometimes we want to hide. But, Lord, we cannot hide from you. Everything in our life is an open book to you. So, Lord, let us live in truth. Let us live in honesty. Let us live as an open book before your eyes. And I pray, Lord, as we do that, Lord, require from us the things that you you want. And, Lord, help us to understand more about who you are so we can continually grow in our faith and trust in you in all the circumstances of life. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.